Did you know, every year, traditional cleaning brands ship billions of pounds of single-use plastic bottles, all of which hold a cleaning solution that's about 98% water? There's a better way to use our resources. I'm Daniel Hartz, and this is the Sustainability Champions podcast, where we highlight the people, ideas, and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. Today, I'm joined by John Bostock, co-founder and CEO of Truman's and author of the book, The Elephant's Dilemma. Truman's is an e-commerce startup that was launched in 2018 that focuses on reducing the amount of plastic and harmful chemicals in household cleaning products. Their products have hilarious names. For example, laundry tablets called Get a Load of This, dishwasher tablets called Your Dish is My Command, and my personal favorite, toilet cleaning tablets, obviously, called Reporting for Duty. Uh, John recently published the book, The Elephant's Dilemma, in which he talks about our personal responsibility to break free from the chains of mediocrity and discover our individual strength to make a change in the world. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Super excited to be talking with you. I think these are some really significant topics that you cover. And I think when you look at not only my book, but the company, we're really trying to break free from the norm and actually do things in a completely different way. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important. I'm looking forward to hearing how you actually tie the concepts of the book into the work that you do on a, on a daily basis. Um, today, I, I'd like to really discuss three things, which we've sort of already outlined, but really the first one is, is your book, which is The Elephant's Dilemma. And, and it's a really important topic because it's really a call to action to get people to do something and, and to really, uh, like you said, break free from the norm. Um, I'd also love to hear about how you, how you use those concepts that, that you outline in the book to start Truman's and uh, also while we're on the topic to hear more about what Truman's actually does because I love learning about ways that we can be environmentally friendly in our daily lives and finally any advice um, that you have whether it's from the elephant's dilemma or from Truman's on how we can be more environmentally friendly uh, especially for those who may not have the time or or a big budget for it so um, briefly before before we jump too far into everything can you describe what the elephant's dilemma is really all about The elephant's dilemma is part personal journey and part battle cry, I think, for all all of us. From from my perspective, as I look back at my career, in many ways, I'm like the title of the book. And the title of the book, Elephant's Dilemma, is about the concept of an elephant. And unfortunately, an elephant that grows up in a circus. And when it's a very, very young being, it is tethered to a pole. And when it grows big and strong, it never learns that it could actually break free. And it is strong enough, powerful enough to go do something magical. And I I look back at my own career, which by the way, on paper was fantastic. I was an executive with GE. Every year I was moving on to bigger roles on paper, more impactful roles. But I found myself every single year wanting to do more. And what I considered doing more was to be defined as is simply something that would contribute to our greater community or the world around us. Yet every single year, I talked myself out of taking that leap. And I found myself every single year being tethered to that reality of a very big company. And so as I was progressing through my career and I actually developed the courage to leave GE, I had a moment and that moment was sitting at my grandmother's funeral. And what I realized is that she had taken on extraordinary risk in her life. She left Belarus and went through Russia and Japan, found her way to the United States, ultimately to think about the world in a much different way than the world that we think about today. She was thinking about the world through the lens of creating a better environment and a more sustainable environment for her family and for future generations and willing to take on extraordinary risk individually. And it hit me in that moment as I had just taken a leap to do something that I considered risky, which in reality is not all that risky, leaving one big job for another big job. 
And it, it hit me that we as a society, we as thought leaders can do better. We can do more. We can actually take bigger leaps with the perspective of thinking about our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, our countries, and our globe as one. Thinking about the world as a single community, how we can work together to bring things together and put things in place that ultimately make the world a better place. And so all of the things that had been done throughout our past with our ancestors, as an example, taking these leaps, being kind to one another, thinking about how you embrace diversity to then pay it forward for future generations, all of those principles we talk about, yet we don't take the leaps in that same way. And so for me, I felt that I had a sense of, 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 of drive and a sense of courage to write the book, to hopefully inspire others to think the way that I started to think, to think the way that it took me a long time to think like. And so hopefully people can start earlier in their career and, and that courage will then create a ripple effect and we'll start seeing fantastic things happen throughout, throughout the business world and, and the greater community. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And actually, your your family's history is very similar to mine. My uh, my parents and my grandparents also came not specifically from Belarus, although I have some family from Be- Belarus, but from Russia and Latvia and kind of the and kind of Eastern European. And they came over to the U.S. when they were um, when my parents were about eighteen years old. And yeah, it's it's a huge risk, you know, leaving one type of government and not let alone country and language uh, and moving to a completely new world and basically needing to figure it all out. It's uh, quite the leap of faith. And it's one of those things where um, you sort of, when I speak with my family about, you know, what was it like? Uh, I, the, the sense that I get is that they sort of just knew that it was going to work kind of because they just had to make it work. There was no other option. Um, which um, I think is really interesting because you, you mentioned the word courage multiple times. And um, one question that comes to my mind is the word courage. And to me, sounds like that means that there's fear still. So how, how do you deal with the fear of, you know, like you said, you know, the, the risk that our ancestors took could potentially be argued as much riskier than moving from one job to another. But how, nonetheless, that fear is there. So how do you, what do you do with that fear? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think that part of it is understanding the context. And when I talk about taking leaps and doing things, I think you have to take the leap and the step that's appropriate for you as an individual. One of the things that I very clearly lay out in the book is for me, when I go back to my time at GE, taking leaps to make the community and the world a better place, it was pretty small as I look back. But at the time, it was a leap and it was a step. And so what I really think that we all have to do is to start by taking small steps. And, you know, even in the book, I talk about, look, Elon Musk is a terrible example of the leaps that we need to take, because that is way too much risk, way too much fear for most people. What you need to do is look at your own world and figure out how you actually start taking those steps. I know more people who say they want to make an impact than actually go out and make an impact. And so what that means are is that there are more people who are afraid, who have fear to take that first step than those who actually took the leap and did something. So I'm not saying everyone should start a company like me. I'm not saying everyone should start an amazing podcast like you where you're helping to spread the word. What I'm saying is if you're working for a company and you feel like you want to make that impact, you have permission to take a step in the right direction, to take a step towards doing something that you feel great about. And once you start taking those little steps, the steps get bigger. And then all of a sudden, after a few years, you look back and you're shocked. You're shocked because you took a huge leap that you really never thought you'd be able to take before. 
Yeah, it's kind of like the idea of if you um, just veer one degree off of a straight line and you fast forward that, uh, you know, for years, all of a sudden you're in a completely different place um, altogether. I, I like that word permission, or rather, I like that concept of, you know, you have permission. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people think that they need is permission to do something or anything really. And um, no one's going to give you permission. Not because they don't want to, but it's because they, there's no need. You already have permission. Um, and I think that the biggest challenges of sometimes making a change, um, whether it's in an organization or in your personal life or you know, whatever the case may be, is that some people may get upset or uncomfortable because it breaks their norm. And maybe that's where that kind of need for permission is, is that you kind of want everyone on board with you first and supporting you. But I'm not sure if that's the case. Um, so is that, was that something that, that you experienced as you started to shake things up at GE and then move into your various roles after the fact? For sure. And you think about our ancestors. Yeah. There was no governing body that looked down and said, you've got to leave. Our ancestors actually looked at the situation and looked at the variables and made a unilateral decision to leave. Yet we live in a culture today, we go to work and we're told by our boss or board of directors what to do. If we live in a city like New Orleans, we just experienced a storm. We sit back and we wait for the governor to tell us to stay or to leave. We are built to ask for permission, but we don't have to. And so when you think about executives for gun manufacture, as an example, if there are executives who believe they can make an impact by putting technology in guns, in the trigger of a gun that is smart enough to know where it is, to, it is smart enough to know that that gun should not be fired in that location, taking an abstract thought like that, taking a leap to actually try and solve, that's a step. But I don't think anyone's going to give permission to them to take that step. They have to take that on their own if they believe that is something that will actually make the world a better place. And they believe it's something that they could invest time and resources into to make real, then they should do it. And so I think that's the huge difference is that we are trained culturally to wait, to sit back, to ask for permission. And we wonder why we're sitting in front of a mirror, brushing our teeth in the morning, looking at ourselves, thinking, I could do more. I mm. should be doing more. But then we find ourselves going to bed at the end of the day, dismissing those thoughts, thinking about the next day ahead and just doing the same thing all over again. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think we've, we've probably all been there. I'm sure there are some people um, who can't relate to that, but I certainly can. Um, and going back to the executives, there's a point, point in your book uh, where you say that we need executives to raise their hands and say, I'm going to break free from the normal bullshit. I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to take my organization with me. And I think it comes back to this idea of permission. I mean, that's often, you're going to have to sell a lot of people on this idea um, and I know that that's something that you had to do as well uh, when you decided to make changes in at GE specifically. And I'm sure as a CEO, that's basically what you do all day long is sell people on ideas of what we what you need to do next. Um, but there's some fear in that because, you know, if, if you're going to, if there's business as usual and all of a sudden you say, we need to make changes like, you know, your, your trigger, um, geolocation trigger technology there's going to be a lot of people who are probably unhappy with that change. Um, so, I mean, what would you recommend to whether it's an executive or even someone who's not necessarily an executive, but, you know, in their little microcosm, how do you break free from the normal bullshit? Yeah, I, I think you have to want to do it. Um, and the reality is that there's nothing holding us back. Yeah. And so the barriers, even, even some of the very light touch barriers that you introduced are all not real. They're not structurally real. So saying that a board wouldn't approve it, saying that a CEO wouldn't approve it, the reality is that any plan makes sense. Anything is achievable. I, I actually, from a governance perspective, do not operate in a way that assumes things can't work. 
I operate in a way that assumes things can work. It's a matter of figuring out how to do it. And so I think when you change your perspective in that way, ultimately what that means is if you truly want to do something, you can actually devote resources and time to doing it. It doesn't mean you're going to be successful 100% of the time, but it means that success is defined by a failed attempt, not stopping it before it even starts. What frustrates me so much around my world today and running my own company, but also just interacting with others is when people decide not to do something before they even start. Yeah. Is when an executive would look and say, you know, the amendment issue with guns, the political issue with guns, this is too messy. I don't even want to go there. I know it's the right decision, but that seems like a really tough battle. And you know, I've only got five years left in my career. I don't want to ruffle a lot of feathers. I just want to make it through it. Well, look, if the last five years of your career you want to devote to doing something like this, do it. You only have one shot. You're not going to get a reset button and, and get to go back and do your career again. You know, this is a battle cry for people who actually want to make change. And I think there are a lot of people out there like that. I, I can't imagine that most people are living through life saying they don't want to make an impact. I think the bottom line is we all want to make an impact. We just don't know how to do it. And so what this book and really my business philosophy in general is about is this concept that, look, our ancestors, number one, they had to take risks. There are other entrepreneurs who believe something could be achieved, just believed in it and actually went after it. You know, I, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is Starbucks. You know, at the time, if we went to middle America and said, there will be a day where people will pay five, six, seven dollars for a cup of coffee in middle America before Starbucks was Starbucks, you would have said that's insane. A cup of coffee is something you get at a counter. It is 25 cents. It is a complimentary good that comes with my meal. It would never be a premium item and you would never have a singular location dedicated to this. But you know what? Somebody believed in that. And that actually created a whole category. And so, you know, look, we're only held back by us believing that something can't be done versus believing that it can be done. But what I try to do is to simply say that you can't take those huge leaps overnight. You've, you've got to start by taking little steps within your own environment. You have to start moving things in the right direction and then ultimately you start taking those bigger leaps and bigger changes. And so, look, the only, from my experience, and I've worked in very large companies, mid-sized companies, and now my own company, the only thing holding all of those organizations back, internal bureaucracy, the, the thought process, the belief that something couldn't be done without ever attempting it. I think that's true. I think... Um... I, it is very frustrating when someone says like, well, I just can't be done. And so that's, and the, com that's a conversation stopper, basically there's, no, and yeah, that's, that's really challenging. I think uh, another thing that you mentioned, which is really important is this idea of patience. And in a world today where in, you know, in about 15 minutes, you can have food delivered to your door. Uh, and we live in an instant gratification society, um, which I'm certainly also, uh, guilty of at times, the concept of patience, I think, is overlooked by a lot because, because um, at least it's something that I have to frequently remind myself as well as, uh, you know, if, if you're going to achieve something really big and worthy, um, you, you just have to be patient. I always think about the way a tree grows um, because trees um, first build out their roots and that can take a really long time but that that's the most important part is that root structure because that's the base and then the trunk can the little sapling comes out and so on but it takes time and you and like you said you're not going to just build starbucks from one little shop in seattle to a global phenomenon overnight that takes years sometimes decades and um i think that's a challenge you know patience is really is a virtue and I think it's a really big challenge. How, how do you, um, I mean, how do you kind of, I guess, convince yourself that it's okay to take your time and to be patient? I, I love, I love what you brought up. And I think patience is such a fantastic way to think about this because here's one side of it. We do live in a world 
where you can get a car to pick you up and bring you somewhere instantly, or you can get food delivered. In fact, a few hours ago, I ordered a few items for my kids, and two hours later, it was on the doorstep from Costco. We do live in a world that moves so fast, and the reality is it's only going to move faster. But here's what I would say as it relates to patients. I mentioned that I know more people who want to do something and don't have the courage. I also know a lot of people who have looked at Facebook and they've watched their colleagues and friends, kids grow up. And all of a sudden it hits them that they, they can't believe that they sat at a desk and, 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 you know, remembered when this child was two years old and, and now they're going off to college. So on one hand, yes, it takes time to build something with Truman's we're building a foundation that hopefully will make, us a revolutionary cleaning company. And you're right, it, it takes the foundation that ultimately grows and it's gonna take time, but to not do it means every single year, if, if you're not taking those steps, you're gonna be watching life move. You're gonna be watching the kids get older on Facebook and then it's gonna hit you one day that you saw 10 to 15 years go by and you didn't take the steps. So, yeah, it takes time and you have to be patient because success doesn't just come overnight, but the alternative can be worse specifically for those people who want to feel like they're contributing. And, and those people who, like me, found themselves five years in to an 11 year career saying, I want to do something different. And it took me another six years. You know, think, think about that. And, and, and I'm a guy who wrote a book on taking leaps and, and having the courage. So this is very real. And I think we are all tethered elephants for the most part. And I think we all have to understand that we have the power, the courage, the imagination to break free and to do something amazing. Yeah, I'm, I think that's, that's a really great point. And I think it reminds me of a phrase that, that I remember, uh, which is, people overestimate how much they can accomplish in one year and underestimate how much they can accomplish in 10. And I think that's, that's an important point as well, because, you know, you're in, um, in one year you start doing, you start doing your think, well, I haven't actually done a whole lot. It's been a year and this is it. And that's, I think that can tie into how you think about patients is, you know, if you're willing to wait for 10 years, and I think that's, that's the challenge is that it's hard to kind of see yourself 10 years into the future. It's pretty far away to the point where you have actually no idea what you'll look like, what things will be like, the technology, especially like you said, things are only moving faster. So yeah, I think there's an element of, of actually, if you're able to use the 10 years idea to your advantage, you'll think, well, actually I can sort of just take my time and, and little things over the course of 10 years, going back to that idea of one degree change will lead you to a completely different uh, place. Uh, I think that allows thinking that it will take 10 years allows you to be patient, um, which can also be frustrating if you're two years in and you're not really seeing anything. And yeah, like you said, five years into an 11 year journey. Uh, there's another point that I, I really liked about uh, that you wrote, which is this idea of legacy. And it's something that you mentioned briefly about your, you know, you're using this word ancestors. Um, and this is tying into sustainability, which is ultimately what we're talking about. And you're saying that, uh, that you believe that the most profound legacy is one that sustains this earth for future generations. And there are a million, a million ways to achieve that. You don't have to be an inventor. You can be part of a company that works towards a united legacy. Um, before we go into uh, sustainability specifically, what does legacy mean to you? Well, I, I think it certainly ties to the concept of creating a better world for those in it. And I think that ultimately we need to pay it forward and mm -hmm. we need to spend our time focused on efforts and different activities in order to make the world a better place. I think what, what most people fail to really understand is that is specifically those of us with, with children, we look at them. And we want the world to be amazing for them. We want the world to be the most special and safe and, and just an environment that gives them 
every single opportunity that we would want for them, clean air, clean water, health uh, a system that ultimately allows them to live a very full life. And the reality is that maybe someday they're going to have kids and those kids will have kids. And the bottom line is that, you know, I, I love my kids so much and I'm sure I'm going to love their kids and I'm sure I would love their kids, kids as well. If I, if I get to see them, but the idea that I can contribute to that world is meaningful. The idea that, you know, if my kid's college is paid for, that is not winning is real. And it, it's real because if the world around them is broken, then they're no better off. If the water is polluted, if they are dealing with pandemics constantly, if, if we're living in a world of chaos, if there's gun violence in every block, if there is gun violence in every school, then what type of world is that? And so when I think about legacy, I, I think about it as being pretty simple, which is, did you take action that ultimately makes the world a better place, period? In your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, and around the world, we have a choice. We either do things for good or not. And it's pretty simple. And when we think about making decisions, you can make decisions that ultimately create lasting impacts for years and years and years. And by the way, it's not things that happen overnight, because to the point that we talked about earlier, some of these things take a long time, but we have to actually play a long game of looking forward. And that's ultimately what legacy is about. You know, if you think about people throughout history, and you touch on that concept of ancestors, they fought for a better world. They may have, have never imagined that pandemics would be what they are, that gun violence would take the shape that it has taken. We have challenges all around us. But throughout history, there have been individuals and groups raising their hands saying, we are going to make decisions for the benefit of the future. And that is what legacy should be about. That is what sustainability should be about. It shouldn't be about now. It should be about making the world a better place for generations that we will never see, but we know will come. It reminds me what you're saying of, um, of another phrase. I'm full of uh, phrases today um, based on what you're saying. And um, I may be kind of butchering this, so I'll, I'll say I'm paraphrasing. And that's the idea that we didn't inherit the earth from our parents, we're borrowing it from our children. And so if, if that's the case, then it's like you say, the actions that we take today, really, we need to keep our kids and future generations in mind. Um, and so off, off the back of that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Truman specifically, because the work that you're doing there, I think ties in perfectly with this. Um, so um, could you briefly describe what exactly Truman's is and, and why it's so special? Yeah, it's it, earlier you mentioned Truman's being a company that works to reduce plastic, and we absolutely do. But what I think is the most defining part of our company is that we're looking at the entire supply chain in a very holistic manner. And what we're saying is the biggest burden, the biggest impact from a sustainability perspective is actually the movement of goods from point A to point Z. So when you think about the factories and you think about how big the factories need to be and how much machinery needs to be in place, how many trucks are needed for these legacy systems, and you think about a bottle of Windex, and you can imagine the factory being huge because they're filling all of these bottles. And these bottles, by the way, are filled with a little bit of formula and a lot of water. And they're moved from that large factory in a lot of trucks and they go sit in distribution centers. And then from one distribution center to another and then to a warehouse. And then ultimately they go to the retail shelf and they're moved all along that journey by a truck. And then you drive your car out to the store, you go to the shelf, you buy a product that's 98% water, you drive back home and there you have it. And ultimately what you end up with is one of the worst and most broken supply chains we could ever imagine. And the reason for that is we've reimagined it. 
And what we've said is, look, if the consumer only needs to buy the concentrate, then every cleaning product we offer, whether it's laundry, dishwasher, a glass cleaner, a kitchen cleaner, whatever we offer, it should only be the concentrate version. And we should only ship it direct. And so what we do is we really look at the company in a way that we have defined as sustainability, which is ultimately not saying that we're not going to use certain materials because at times that's hard. What we're saying is that we're going to adapt. As the world around us changes, we're going to adapt, but we're going to find the most simple and lean way of doing things. We're going to figure out ways to take trucks off the road. We're going to figure out ways to not need distribution centers all over the U.S. We're going to figure out ways to shrink our footprint. And then once the footprint is radically reimagined, we're going to then use better materials when we have the scale to actually introduce more sustainable materials. So you talk about this long-term plan. Our company on the outside, you mentioned, is a very funny company. We have incredibly funny brand names. We have uh, cleaning puns all throughout the site, but we're a very serious company and we're very serious in the way that we are imagining what cleaning should be 30, 40, 50 years from now versus what it is today. It's incredibly broken. The fact that most people go to the store and haven't really taken a step back and thought about the journey of that product, the environmental impact of just shipping the product, and that's, by the way, even before we get into the environmental impact of some of the chemicals and materials that are used in the product. So, you know, it's a category that ironically is messy and it's cleaning, uh, but it's one that we are very excited to clean up. And I think Truman's being a very young company has the chance to do it. We're not beholden to legacy manufacturing structures legacy supply chain processes or shelves that require us to look a certain way. We can design products to be what we think is right. And we can design products ultimately to deliver on the highest level of quality in the most compact size possible. So when you say compact size, I mean, kind of more specifically, what are we talking about here? Because it sounds like what you're, what you're doing is basically by when you're saying that you're cutting out a lot of trucks and distribution centers, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, I mean, there is clearly a lot that goes involved that's involved and goes into it that most end consumers have no idea about, including myself. Um, so you, to me, it sounds like you're, first of all, big changes that you're shipping directly to the consumer. So I, I would buy directly from Truman's and it would come from your factory or production center or distribution center directly to me. So that cuts out a billion middlemen and yeah that that's right that's one step right so one step is mm -hmm. moving products and that is a significant environmental impact but when you think about the action of reducing the amount of trucks on the road the easiest way to think about it is the bottle of windex that is 98 percent water there is a very small amount of cleaning agent formula that's in the product and so what we as trumans do is we send you, think of it like a mini bottle. That's the easiest way to think about, which is less, um, less weight, less material, and requires significantly less trucks, 70% less trucks on the road. And so it's a huge, huge change. And it, from a shipping burden perspective, you can use United States Postal Service with a built-in infrastructure that already exists, moving parts that already exist, and so you can really leverage the infrastructure that is in place in the United States. And so, you know, it's ultimately a model that makes a lot of sense. It uses dramatically less material. It, um, as I said, from a supply chain perspective, I think that's ultimately uh, the biggest win. And so what we're able to do is, is provide a much better quality product at an affordable rate to the consumer in this, in this format. Even if you look at laundry, as an example, we've compacted the size and we only ship powder pods. So we're not shipping liquid, which liquid is such a heavy variable within the supply chain. It, it ultimately creates a lot of waste in terms of uh, the dimension of the product sitting in warehouses. It creates a lot of waste ultimately with the dimension and the weight within trucks moving it. 
Uh, and so we're, we're really rethinking the category. Every single one of our products is designed in a unique way. Even our sponges, as an example, we've, we've designed sponges that use recycled material, but they're very, very, very flat. And they actually do not increase in size until water is added. And so when you think about just the shipping uh, example of that, if you're reducing the NU size by 75 or 80%, well, you can ship more. And so we're, we're constantly thinking about ways to improve products in a way that isn't going to negatively impact what the consumer wants, which is a great product that works really well, but we're going to give it to them in a way that makes a lot of sense. And uh, ultimately, you know, if consumers are getting better products, at a great price, and there's less of an impact in the supply chain, that's sustainable. And that's something that when you're using less material, less trucks on the road, less emissions, your footprint has completely shrunk. And then by the way, you reimagine it all over again once you get there. And so you look at it like a process that you're gonna constantly improve. Absolutely. I mean, there's clearly a lot of work to get to that point. And then once you're there, you'll probably have found so many different ways to, um, to improve it and continue to do that. The, um, I think the idea of shipping water is kind of crazy because I think we're very lucky, you know, whether it's in the United Kingdom or in the US or in many other parts of the world to have tap water at home. And to, to think that you're, and I actually got this concept from a previous episode uh, with Scott Edwards, who's the CEO of, of a company called Dropwater. And they're basically making, um, they're basically making vending machines that uses tap water and fills, makes the drink right there for you to order. And he always says, you know, we have tap water and we have water right here. I mean, literally right here to think that we're shipping water halfway across the country or more. And in the case of uh, drinking water, sometimes it comes from the other side of the planet um, is just outrageous. And I think what, what you're saying is skip that part because you have water already at home. Skip that part. Use your own water that you already have. It's high quality. It's really great. And here's the magic ingredients to make it work. Um, so I think it's brilliant. And also from a storage perspective, you know, if, like to hold a little box of pods is way more convenient than to have some massive thing that like you have to lug up and down the stairs or whatever the case may be. Uh, so yeah, I think it, it just, it's logical too. It's easier. Um, from the point of view of packaging, I think that's something that, that at least from, from your website, you have quite a lot of pride around. And I, and I think rightly so. How is um, the packaging uh, that Truman's uses different than aside, well, of course, there's the plastic side, but also the, um, the cardboard that it comes in. What, what's, uh, what's special about the way that you approach your packaging? Yeah, we try to make decisions based on sustainability measures. And so while, you know, we're not a company that avoids materials, um, we are a, a company that tries to reduce the amount of materials we use and the type of materials we use. So we would never take a position that says, you know, here's a list of materials we would never use. We, we think that ultimately that imp negatively impacts your ability to really drive change. So our packaging strategy, you're right. We're very proud of it. And what we've tried to do is look at it and say, when you, when you think about using pods, can you do it in a better way? Now we've chosen to use, to your point, a cardboard box. It's the easiest way to define it in, in a way that people are gonna understand. Now we, we choose to do that because you can recycle it. Now, here's the challenge with doing that. And this will show you the decisions that we have to make. If you think about most automated lines where you're dropping a pod into some type of box, most automated lines in the entire industry are not built to drop into a very, very lean cardboard box. And when I say lean, ultimately what you want is the cardboard design, uh, the cardboard box design in a way that fits the products properly. So if it's dropping it in, you have two choices. You either have a lot of airspace or you use a plastic pouch that is designed to automate the process. So what we've had to do is really look at the supply chain and say, where is the biggest risk from a sustainability perspective, knowing that it's absolutely critical to reduce 
the amount, the, the, the dimensions of the product. Because if you reduce the dimensions of the product, ultimately you can fit more in trucks. If you can fit more in trucks, that means you need less. And it means you need less warehouses. And so the entire supply chain uh, is actually more efficient. However, here's the interesting thing about our packaging. So yes, just at first glance, it's beautiful and it's sustainable as measured by material and all of those things. But we have actually chosen a very labor intensive model. So we're actually paying more to have the products packed in order to realize this benefit on the other side. And I think those are, you know, those are things that not only are we proud of the decisions and, and, and holding true to those decisions, but we're proud that we're actually taking the effort to do that. And so oftentimes someone might say, well, your product is not as, as inexpensive as product B or, or you could do it more effectively. Well, that's an example of we're not going to use a plastic bag just because it's automated. Because ultimately, when you look at the use of that plastic bag, it's going to take up more space. There are going to be less of the product in more trucks. You're going to have more facilities needed. And then you have to deal with the afterlife of a plastic film. And so that's an example that we're not saying we're anti-plastic. What we're saying is we're choosing a method that from A to Z is more sustainable. And that's the right way to do it in our eyes. And so when you look at our packaging, we've worked very, very hard to say what specifically for this product category, what is the best way to deliver it in a way that's going to get the customer the best product and the best user experience so that they're going to want to use it again and again. Because what we know is people buy cleaning products because they work. People buy cleaning products because they're effective. And we need, we need to have people fall in love with the product in order to continue to build this forward. I think um, one of the first things you said is that the packaging needs to fit the product. And I think this is such a big thing um, because the number of times I've ordered things online and I get some box which <laughs> arrives and I have to like squeeze it in through the door. And I'm just thinking, oh man, I cannot wait to see what's inside this thing. And then I open it and it's like a book. You know, and and I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating to make a point, but you you sometimes get these things, and they're the boxes are five times the size, and clearly it's from an automated point of view. And going back to this idea of we live in a very fast-paced world, that's the fastest way to make sure that you get your things. Um, You know, like you said, you order something on Costco, two hours later it's at your doorstep. It, It can't be a manual process for that to be a reality. But at the same time, the amount of resources that are wasted everywhere along the supply chain in order for that to be a reality is outrageous. Um, and so I, I, one thing that I've, I, I really liked when I saw what I saw on your website is that your packaging is, is snug to the product. Like there is no space for things to rattle around. So you don't need any packing peanuts or any, any of right. those, uh, little air pouch things with plastic, which say that they're recyclable. Um, and that makes all the difference. And, and the cardboard, from what I understand, is quite thick as well. So it is protected, the product, I mean. Yeah, we, we it's, it's uh, you obviously studied our packaging and I'm so appreciative of that <laughs> because you did notice that part of the strategy is that we designed a system. And when you look at the way the packaging works together, um, we use the packaging to support the other packaging. And so... If, for example, you order three products from us or you order four products from us, we've actually done design thinking around making the package work for all of it as a combined unit so that we really reduce the amount of of dead airspace. Um, Because not only do we not want to ship water, we don't want to ship air. And so when you look at our packaging, our whole strategy is built around really reducing that dimension. And so you're, you're absolutely right in, in calling out that, you know, everything is, is designed to ultimately maximize the, the, the space in that box. And so, um, no, it's, it's, it's not easy and it's not easy to do these things, but I'll tell you, having been on the other side of the design process, we feel great about it because we look at the way that not only we've designed it, but the way that we're actually realizing now ways to improve it from an automation standpoint 
And what you start to see is, and we talked about it earlier, but that foundation that ultimately leads for a better and more sustainable company. And so, yeah, the, the packaging, uh, and we've won some awards for it. And, and you know, there, there are things that you can point to, but I think what we're most proud of is when we look at shipping rates and when we look at, you know, the, the, the fact that we're reducing that footprint, that's ultimately what matters. You know, we, we, if, if there are going to be more people and, those, and more people are going to want products faster and more frequently, we can't be shipping air and we can't be shipping products that are ultimately not designed to be shipped. And so, you know, agree, let's not ship water and let's not ship air and, and uh, let's, uh, let's actually change the world. Yeah, it's incredible that your product, what would otherwise be, if you order it from any kind of big box store, um, you know, a cleaning product would have to come in some pretty big box. I imagine it's probably like maybe two by two, three by two, I don't know, something big. And yours is probably the size of a book, maybe, I would imagine. Um, yes, yes. It's a huge thing, and you're 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 quite humble. I mean, you said you've won a couple of of awards. One of them is Fast Company's award uh, that honored Truman as a world changing idea. So, um, going back to what, what which I think is amazing, and going back to what we were what we were talking about earlier. I mean, how, how it's it's this idea of permission. You know, coming back to that you, I don't, I I highly doubt anyone gave you permission to do this. Um, it was clearly a problem that you saw and you, you just went for it. So, you know, what advice would you give? And, and we've talked about quite a lot extensively, but I, I guess in maybe some bite-sized pieces to someone who wants to make a difference in the world and they want to be more sustainable because ultimately this is an environmentally friendly focused podcast, although you can apply these concepts to any part of your life. Um, you know, someone wants to be more sustainable. Maybe they live in the city. They they don't have millions of dollars. They don't have tons of time. They're working. Maybe they have kids and, you know, but they just want to make a difference. What, what can they do sort of today, right now um, to, to really get started? Yeah, I think first is defining what you're passionate about. And once you know what you're passionate about, start looking for opportunities within that category. And so as an example, if you're passionate about food, and you want, and you live in New York City, and you want to understand how to make the supply chain uh, different and more sustainable, find a way to start growing fruits and vegetables in your environment. And once you figure it out, scale it. And once you scale it, offer fruits and vegetables within your little borough in Manhattan. And the reason for that is you're now shrinking the movement of that product. Hmm. If organic fruits and vegetables are grown on the rooftop of a building in New York, and we're using this as an example, and they're sold on the ground floor of that building, that is one of the shortest supply chains you can imagine. Yeah. And so, you know, there are ways to think about creating sustainable systems. I would say the first step is really figuring out what you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about homelessness, start taking steps and leaps to solve that. If you're passionate about, as I mentioned, food accessibility, which in my opinion is, is, is part of sustainability, if you're thinking about reducing the environmental uh, footprint of it, you have to start by taking these small steps, but you also have to define what it is you want to do. And you have to be passionate about it. And I say that because, you know, for me, I wanted to disrupt the cleaning category and it is now my life. <laughs> and I'm glad that I'm passionate about it because it's what I have to think about every day. And so the, the thing that I would say to those individuals in New York City that we're talking about, these abstract people looking to make a change, what I would say is first, define what you want to do. Second, start taking small steps to do it. Give yourself the confidence that you can do it. And third, once you figured it out, do it. You have permission, just go do it. And you know what? There are people all around you who will support. There are people like me who will raise their hand and say, I will help you. I will help you because I want to pay my knowledge forward and I want to see other people succeed. There are venture capitalists out there who will give people money to go out 
and to take a leap. There are different ways to actually activate these concepts and these ideas that once someone is passionate about it, once they've proven that they can take that leap, people are going to back them up. And, you know, I talk about it in the book, but we need an ecosystem of kindness around us. Find someone who's going to support you and be your champion when you're taking those steps. Great point. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of like a, a workout buddy, someone that you can count on. Uh, and for, for anyone who wants to take that small step and, and reduce the supply chain when it comes to cleaning products, how can they get started with, with Truman's and where can they find your products? Check us out in the United States. We're at Truman's.com. We get a ton of interest from people outside of the U.S. Unfortunately, right now, we're only available in the U.S. We do have an amazing customer service team on chat, and you can chat with them and ask them questions, and they'll help guide you uh, through the purchase process. So we've made it super easy. Um, It's a very, very fun uh, site, and there's a lot of humor in it. And I would say, if you have a few minutes, read through every section, because in every single section, there's a a little bit of humor that you would never expect to see on a cleaning brand's website. So uh, definitely check it out at trumans.com. And anyone can, by the way, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I absolutely love connecting with people. And I love paying my knowledge forward and helping people out with different projects and different ways to think about taking leaps like, like I've taken. Well, that's awesome and, and very generous as well. I think um, hopefully someone will, will take advantage of that and, and you can help them make a difference uh, with any idea that they have. Uh, finally, of course, the book, The Elephant's Dilemma, where can people buy that and, and get started with changing their life? The easiest way is on Amazon. And Amazon has been a great partner uh, for us. And you know, really, we've... Uh, I've personally been so thankful for not only um, the, the work uh, of Amazon, but uh, the, the team to help put it in the market. And, you know, it's just been fantastic. It's, it's been so well received and I'm really, I'm, I'm just taken back by it. You know, I, I started the book as, as kind of a way of, of, of hopefully inspiring one individual um, to, to take that leap. And it seems like, um, it's, it's inspired quite a few. And so I'm, I'm just super grateful for, for the support and definitely check it out, uh, on Amazon. Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. I absolutely love this conversation. It was really educational and inspiring. And for, uh, for anyone who's listening, who wants to take a small step forward, hopefully, um, John's words have inspired you. They certainly have done that for me. So thank you very much, John. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.